Let's go together before the Lord in prayer. Father, we come to you because you are creator. You are the one who disciplines your world. You are redeemer. And we delight that We've been taught that we can call you Father. So would you Father us uh, through your word, by your spirit, at the table? We ask it in Jesus' name. Amen. We move into a new series this morning that uh, as I've been thinking about it, praying about it, working on it a lot this last couple of weeks, uh, I've gotten more and more excited in looking uh, another time uh, for me at uh, Jesus' parables, and I imagine for many of you. We're going to look at least for a number of weeks around the theme of the kingdom parables, and so this morning I'm calling this uh, kingdom identity, it's all about the seed. And that subtitle simply means we've been singing about uh, new life, new birth, and recent words we've sung together. Uh, The new life, the new birth, all comes from God's seed. It's all about Him, and it can be about us because it's all about Him and because of what He is to us in Jesus Christ. And uh, it certainly has implications for us But if you've been alive very long, and most of us sitting here uh, have got a few years under our belts, uh, we know we're awfully quick to make it about us, Uh, and often uh, about us before we really understand how it's about Him. So we're going to start this journey uh, into this series with a focus first on His kingdom and In the first heading, if you've got the outline in the bulletin, and uh, those should be up on the web, if not already for this week, but uh, uh, early in the week so that you can go back to them, or if you're uh, looking, uh, streaming with us, that you can get the outline that way, and I think we're going to put the first Peter series outlines back up there as well. But we're going to take a look at the earliest gospel references and how they tie together both the gospel and the kingdom. Sometimes we talk about the gospel over here, and we talk about the kingdom over here. We don't even go back and look at how the very first times in the New Testament and the gospels they're talked about, how they fit together. Robert Capon sets the context well for us. He says, therefore, for every second of time, the world has been a world. Catch that? In other words, always. It has been a kingdom. And he's talking about God's kingdom. Its progress through history is not a transition from no kingdom to kingdom. Rather, it is a progression from kingdom in a mystery to kingdom made manifest. And the parables fit into that flow in a particular way, and we'll be talking about that this morning and in coming weeks. The Gospels begin 
a new part of that unfolding revelation. God, who's never abandoned his creation, is about to arrive on the scene in a new way. It's not that the kingdom hasn't been there before, but the kingdom is coming in the incarnation of his eternal son, the word of God, taking on flesh and beginning to walk on planet earth. So the first heading, the good news of God and his kingdom. I put just a few verses on your outline. Let me read them very, very quickly. Mark 1.1, the beginning of the gospel of Jesus Christ, the Son of God. That's the first reference, the earliest reference in any of the gospels. It's the gospel of Jesus Christ, the Son of God. In chapter 1, verses 14 and 15, Mark writes, now after John the Baptist was arrested, Jesus came into Galilee proclaiming the gospel of God. The gospel of the Lord Jesus Christ, God's only Son, is the gospel of God, the good news of God, saying the time is fulfilled and the kingdom of God is at hand, Jesus begins to, repeat, to proclaim. Repent and believe in the gospel. In Matthew 4.23, and Jesus went throughout all Galilee, teaching in their synagogues and proclaiming the gospel of the kingdom. And it's likely we can't be absolutely sure that Matthew talks more about the gospel of the kingdom than the gospel of God because the Jews were taught not to use the name of the Lord in vain and therefore they had a habit of not even saying it. Whenever the covenant name of God that we try to pronounce in English, Yahweh, Y-W-H, in most of your translations, when that's the Hebrew word behind it, it's in all caps. It's not just L for God in general, but it's the covenant name of God. They simply wouldn't say it. They would say Adonai, or, which means the Lord, or something else in its place. So Matthew, not wanting to offend his audience, it seems likely, talks about the gospel of the kingdom of heaven rather than the kingdom of God. But it means the same thing. Romans 1, Paul Paul's magnum opus, a servant of Christ Jesus called to be an apostle, set apart for the gospel of God, and he defines it a verse later, concerning his son, who was declared to be the son of God in power according to the spirit of holiness by his resurrection from the dead, Jesus Christ our Lord. There you've got Father, Son, and the Holy Spirit of holiness who's involved directly with the resurrection of the Lord Jesus. It's helpful to remember that the gospel is something proclaimed, and it's proclaiming an event, the incarnation, not simply an idea. The good news of God, the good news of the kingdom, is that God is here, the kingdom is here, because the Son is here. It's not just an announcement. If I proclaim to you with authority, and you believed me, that there was an army coming off ships and of the enemies of the United States coming off ships at Daytona Beach, and it was somewhere between 500,000 and a million, you probably wouldn't, if you believe me, say, oh, thanks for telling us. It would be an event, and you would start thinking about, what do we do? Daytona Beach is not far away. This kind of announcement has to be dealt with. Secondly, 
this coming of God's Son, when we understand the Scripture, this gospel is everything. It changes everything, and it needs to become everything to us. It's bigger than everything else. It encompasses everything else. It brings both judgment on everything that has been and is a new beginning for everything that will be and will last. And we say, wow, good news from God. We want to own it. And we're very quick to own it. We want to grab it. We want to take hold of it. We want to use it for our purposes. We want to fit into it, but we really want to have control of it. But one of the things the parables teach us is that though we're quick to want to own it, we're slow to see and hear it and to let its hiddenness really lay hold of us. We want to lay hold of it. And I'll explain a little bit what I mean in this second heading. I don't have time to read all of these passages, but I've put them on the outline. I want you to look first uh, at the questions John the Baptist asked. Remember, he was the forerunner, the announcer of God's Son, Messiah, coming. And then all of a sudden, after announcing this, and Jesus is not only baptized by John the Baptist, but he's anointed by God from heaven by the Spirit of God, And Jesus goes on about his ministry, and John sees it increasing, and it's wonderful. The kingdom is here. And what happens next to John? He gets put in prison. Now, if you were John, and you sat around in prison for a while, knowing in those days it was an even more dangerous place to be than ours, our day, uh, you probably start having some questions. So Matthew 11, verse 2, now when John heard in prison about the deeds of Christ, he's in prison, he sends words by his disciples and said, are you the one who is to come or shall we look for another? I'm in prison. If the kingdom is here, why am I in prison? This wasn't what I expected. You got to not just look at the words of scripture, but you got to think about the people. You got to think about yourself before God. What would I be asking? What was the kind of kingdom I expected and still expect? And now what's happening? And so Jesus simply tells him about the things he's doing, the blind receiving sight, the lame walking. You can read the detail on your own. And then Jesus speaks to the crowds concerning John that are there when John's disciples come. What did you go out into the wilderness to see? A reed shaken by the wind? What did you go out to see? A man dressed in soft clothing? What did you go out to see, a prophet? Yes, I tell you, and more than a prophet, this is he of whom it is written, Behold, I send my messenger before your face who will prepare the way. And he says that among those born of women, there's arisen no one greater than John, yet the one who is least in the kingdom is greater than he. Note verse 12. It's a verse that's a mystery to a lot of us, but I hope this gives you some insight. From the days of John the Baptist until now, the midst of Jesus' ministry. The kingdom of heaven has suffered violence, and the violent take it away by force. We see the force in John's imprisonment. John's announcing the kingdom, and Herod wants to take control of it, so he controls John. And what happens to Jesus? You fill in the answer. The violent still try to take control of the kingdom. And the civil authorities and nation after nation try to take control of the kingdom, try to use it for their own good. And heaven forbid, sometimes the church tries to take control 
of the kingdom and the world. And in certain centuries has even used force. John announced Jesus' kingdom and they locked him up. Jesus announced his kingdom and they set out to kill him very early in his ministry. Secondly, I want you to note in Matthew 4, 1 through 17, again, we're not teaching that text. We're going to look at one short parable as we wrap this together in just a few minutes. But you might want to look at these passages this afternoon. Matthew 4, which is when the devil tempts Jesus straight away to reveal his power and his identity. You remember the temptations? By the way, Matthew tells us that uh, Jesus was led, he was cast forth into the desert by the Holy Spirit, one of the other gospels puts it. This is part of God's plan to put him out into the wilderness. Boy, that, that's what you want to do when you want to announce a kingdom, right? You go out in the wilderness. A little bit of a mystery there. And he fasts 40 days and 40 nights, and he's hungry, and the tempter comes and says, if you are the Son of God, command these stones to become loaves of bread. A little later, the devil takes him to the holy city and sets him on the pinnacle of the temple and says, if you are the Son of God, throw yourself down, for it's written, he will command his angels concerning, concerning you, and they'll lift you up and hold you up. What's the enemy trying to do? He's saying, reveal quickly who you are. Use your power. None of this desert stuff. None of this indirection. Be direct. Show us that you are the Son of God if you are the Son of God. And then finally, he tries to do with Jesus what he did with Eve and with Adam. I'll give you all the kingdoms of the world, he says from the pinnacle, and their glory if you'll fall down and worship me suggest you go back and look at what he told Eve and what he told Adam. If you'll but do this, then I'll give you this and you will be like God. And so Jesus is not announcing the kingdom directly. And he's the second Adam, the last Adam, who doesn't fail in the temptation the way that the first Adam fell. The devil tries to get him to announce himself and his kingdom without a cross. Jesus refuses and the devil leaves for a while. And, and then did you note where Jesus goes? He goes into the territory north of Capernaum by the sea of Zebulun and Naphtali, the land of Zebulun and the land of Naphtali, the way of the sea beyond the Jordan, Galilee of the Gentiles. The way of the sea is the Via Maris, the northern road from Babylonia and Assyria across to the Mediterranean. The people that dwelled in darkness have seen a great light. And for those dwelling in the region and the shadow of death, on them a light has dawned. Has anything good come out of Nazareth, the scripture says? Zebulun and Tali, the little tribes way up north, they, they got the shaft. They got as far away from the temple of God as anybody can get. So Jesus introduces his kingdom, and he goes straight to Jerusalem, right? Oh, he goes to Zebulun and Naphtali. He starts with the least of these. Thirdly, Jesus' resurrection and ascension Curious way to announce a kingdom. I mean, the resurrection is really a big deal. 
But why announce it to only a few hundred people? Why let only a few hundred? I mean, 500 at one time is a big deal, Paul tells us. So they're still alive. Go ask them. You know, the inner circle of Jesus and those surrounded him, see him, touch him, know that something remarkable has happened. But if you're going to announce the kingdom of God, that's a strange way to do it. And then the ascension. The passages are listed on the outline in Acts 1. I'm not going to take the time to read them, but they go back up to Galilee, and, and there are only a few there when he bodily, 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 I believe in the resurrection of the body, he bodily ascends to heaven. But that's a strange way to tell the world the kingdom of God is at hand. And yet that's the beginning of Jesus' ministry. The ongoing hiddenness of kingdom and king show the parables not to be different from gospel reality because gospel reality is that the Son of God is here, the kingdom has begun, a lot of it is with us, but it's the already and the not yet, the things that we wait for. We have the down payment, the earnest of the Holy Spirit, but not the fullness. We have the promise of the adoption as sons and daughters of God, but the fullness, Romans 8, doesn't come until the return of our King. But we always want it all now. Don't make too much fun of the devil. As the elders spoke last week about what they saw as their great inadequacies that added to some of the hurts that Brent, and I so appreciated your prayer, Brent. You know, one of the things that I thought of is we want the kingdom and we want it to work perfectly now, right? And I'll say more in the after meeting uh, that I'll give you the time after communion, but one of the things that hit me is that some of what caused some of the great confusion was great forbearance in love and trying to figure out when to deal with what and how to deal with it. So some of the very things that hurt are the result of good things in us, even though some of what we did and didn't do, different ones of us, you know, were what caused the hurt. But there's something in us that says it can't be that way. It's always got to be right. And I'm not minimizing anything that needs to be dealt with. But I'm not minimizing our tendency to want it all right and demand more of others than we demand of ourselves. Are you like me? I, I judge myself by my intentions. And I will have you know my intentions 90 plus percent of the time are wonderful. But I judge others by their actions. You can afford to be a lot harder on yourself than you can afford to be on others. And when others are hurt, as Brent prayed, we need to create tender places to talk to one another and listen to one another. Got to move quickly. We want to claim and own a kingdom that won't send us to prison. We want a Messiah who won't do battle where it can't be seen in the wilderness. We struggle with a Messiah who would die instead of conquer. Do you begin to see that the same kind of contrasts in Jesus' actions are what you're going to see in the parables? And one of the most important things in the parable is figuring out what's being compared to what, what's being contrasted with what. They're not simple allegories to teach you principles. They're pictures of real life. 
that you might seek Jesus as your wisdom. I'd much rather have a Jesus who gives me principles. Because then when I follow him and you don't, you're bad and I'm good. But the parables give us wisdom of the struggle in this in-between time. And we have to come to Jesus as our wisdom. Surprise, surprise, at the end of one of the best passages of the New Testament on the gospel, 1 Corinthians 1 and 2, uh, Paul says that Christ has become to us wisdom from God. And often we want the wisdom straight, and he says, wisdom is like someone who in this situation (laughs) does that. And we go, Jesus, why'd you answer me that way? And can I answer for Jesus? I think a lot of times he's saying, because that's exactly the way you need to be answered because you haven't thought about it enough yet. And you want to take charge of it and put it in a manageable statement that you can control instead of learning to look at my world and my church the way I look at it. Some things on the outline that could help you as we think about parables. parables. The Greek word is just para, para, alongside, and balo, the verb, to throw, to cast, to put, to place. And Jesus' parables take ideas, events, actors, actions, sayings, and place them alongside other actions and sayings. And we have to ask, why does he do that? What is he comparing? What is he contrasting? And how does it connect to Christ, who is both incarnate word and gospel? Why is the meaning hidden to some and not others? Parable, the Greek word, is rooted in the concept of a Hebrew word, mashal, And mashal in Hebrew basically means proverb. But do you know what proverb meant to the Hebrews during the Old Testament times? Proverb meant proverbs, stories, riddles, and similes. They're all included in the idea of mashal and of parable. So the concept is bigger. Thirdly and finally, Jesus' parables and kingdom hiddenness. There's an initial unveiling. There's this middle pathway that I've mentioned, and there's a future fullness at the return of our king. Let me read just one parable, and we'll talk about it just a tiny bit, and then we'll start digging into parables next week. Matthew 13, verse 24. Jesus put another parable before them, saying, The kingdom of heaven may be compared to a man who sowed good seed in his field. But while his men were sleeping, his enemy came and sowed weeds among the wheat and went away. So when the plants came up and bore grain, then the weeds appeared also. And the servants of the master of the house came and said to him, Master, did you not sow good seed in your field? How then does it have weeds? He said to them, An enemy has done this. So the servants said to him, Then do you want us to go and gather them? But the master said, no, lest in gathering the weeds you root up the wheat along with them. Let both grow together until the harvest, and at harvest time I will tell the reapers, gather the weeds first and bind them in bundles to be burned, but gather the wheat into my barn. We don't have time for it, but later in the chapter, Jesus teaches his disciples what that parable means. But you begin to see that uh, 
he's pushing this beginning understanding of his ministry and the coming of God's kingdom in his person to understand it, it all doesn't happen quick. And uh, do you remember that James and uh, John, Jesus' disciples, were called the sons of what? The sons of thunder. And there was a time when uh, uh, some people weren't doing what uh, James and John thought they ought to do, and they turned to Jesus and said, shall we cast down fire for heaven on them, from heaven on them? <laughs> Jesus, I wish we could see the look on his face, but we kind of know, like, you guys just don't get it yet. You need some more parables. You can't fully tell who's good seed and who's bad. And some people that hang out around the church, and we shouldn't make them church officers, but they ought to be allowed to hang around. And some people are church officers, we find out. Sadly, not many, but I can think of one or two over the years. They went to rot, even if they were good seed. But we often don't know for a long, long time, do we? Which is why forbearing with one another in love, we're back to Peter. I encourage you to think through 1 Peter while we look at the parables. After giving more parables after this, the mustard seed, the leaven in the flour, Jesus explains that he utters parables because he's teaching what has been hidden since the foundation of the world, which is the way his kingdom is coming. And then he explains the parable to the disciples. And then he gives three more parables, the treasure hidden in the field, the pearl of great price, and a net thrown into the sea. And then he asks his disciples, This is a dangerous question for a professor to ask. Have you understood all of these things? And they say in Greek, nigh, which sounds like no, but it's yes. But I wonder, uh, one commentator says, maybe it's more like, "Uh (laughs) uh-huh. And they're hoping if they give enough of those kinds of answers, he won't ask them, well, tell me what it all means then. And after they say yes, he said to them, therefore, every scribe, every serious student, scholar who has been trained for the kingdom of heaven is like a master of a house who brings out of his treasure what is new and what is old. Every scribe, every pastor teacher, and those taught by them is to see that They're to be like the chief steward of a large house of the kingdom who brings out of the treasure of the household things that are old and things that are new. I don't want to go too far, but I think if you look at the context of Jesus' teaching, you see that uh, he's not saying Adam isn't important and that Moses isn't as important and that Abraham isn't as important. But he also says things like, before Abraham was, I am. There's the old and the new. The Torah is the law. He doesn't tear it down, but he teaches it in new ways. And the one who has the wisdom of the kingdom of God in Jesus has to learn how to put old and new together, which takes what? Wisdom, which is what we must be seeking. Not for mere principles, but for him. God come to us in the flesh who holds us together in ways we don't yet understand. And we understand some things well from what he did in coming and dying and forgiving and rising and ascending, but the middle pathway of our sharing and the waiting and the suffering and taking up our own crosses daily to put to death our self-centered ways, we're just mere novices and we'd a lot rather have a kingdom we could take hold of than one that calls us to walk in Jesus' steps, wouldn't we?
And yet that's where he calls us. And that's where the kingdom of God is for the church as we transition to the Lord's table. I ran across this week um, something that fairly recently during this COVID pandemic, a pastor wrote, a woman wrote uh, to a pastor she trusted. She said, I'm a new widow, a mother of two young boys in my mid-30s. My husband passed away suddenly and unexpectedly from what we did not know at the time was bacterial pneumonia. He also had an underlying heart condition. He died one week before his 34th birthday. He was normal one day and at home with the Lord three days later. We had thought his ailments were a flu bug or COVID and didn't realize the severity. We responded by following telephone guidance from someone who also had assumed COVID. As I grieve, I can't seem to stop blaming myself. I desperately want reassurance to know that I didn't hurt my husband, let him down, or by my actions, our actions, shorten his life. I tried to care for him and protect him. Once we were in the ER and discovered that he was facing septic shock, I prayed fervently for the Lord to rescue and heal him. I'm left wondering if I should continue to feel responsible. I need help to trust God. If he, God, was responsible, and if so, that he is still good despite taking my soulmate and my best friend home at such a young age and in a difficult-to-understand time. The pastor wrote her, but she knew in writing him that he took some of the letters and put them in a column. And what he put in the public column uh, was about how recent and raw this loss was, that it didn't happen five years ago. It happened during COVID. And he says, I want to be careful. I think the fact that she is reaching out to us in this public way is a good sign that she hasn't despaired of discovering new things in God's Word that might ease the pain. I think she's right in that, and that there are new things. I sure hope she hasn't yet seen that God wants her to see for her own, all that God wants her to see for her own help and comfort and hope. I think there will be new fresh things, in fact, for her to see for the next 50 years. She'll see things in God's word 50 years from now that will shed light on this heart-wrenching loss in such a way and even at that distance to make the love of Christ and the memory of her husband even more precious. I am seeing things that are shedding light on sorrows I experienced 60 years ago. I'm still getting new light on the meaning of those years. So I expect that for her. Neither scribes and pastors who study God's kingdom and word nor the people who learn from them and from our own reading should expect simple answers for everything quickly. That is not the way of the word. It's not the way of our Savior. Jesus learned perfectly as he grew in flesh and wisdom and stature, but he still wondered and prayed as God unfolded his plan. When Jesus stayed up all night to pray to choose his disciples, 
He didn't already know who he was going to choose. He didn't live by his omniscience as the eternal Son of God. He lived by the perfect Spirit of God, who perfectly and timely for the incarnate Son of God revealed to him what he needed. He was God and man, but he was man. How much more we wonder what's happening because of our actions and our failures and those of the church and the chaos of the world that runs from the Good Shepherd. So this morning as we go to the table, I ask you, uh, don't just go to the table. Go to Jesus at his table. Go to the one who is your wisdom. Don't just take a piece of bread and drink from the cup. But drink from your wisdom and cry out, oh Lord Jesus, there are so many things in my life that when I get quiet, I don't understand. Things from my past, things in the present, worrying about the future. Would you be with me anew and show me that you have become to me the wisdom of God in this my and everyone else's in-between time?